H.A. Jason here. Enjoyed the first episode of Season 6, Roleplay Rescue. Looking forward to your answer to Spencer's question. It sounds like you have a lot of interesting things to talk about this season, so I definitely am looking forward to that. Thank you for putting your podcast out. I always enjoy listening to it. Always look forward to it. And look forward to the next one. I'll see you online. If you say the real life fills up your days And you don't have time to play Well, midlife is the best time to start a new role-playing thing My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello, rescuers. I hope you're well, and thank you for listening. Season 6 is underway, and it seems an age ago that I received that message from Jason, shared at the top of the show. Thanks, Jason. I hope you enjoyed episode 2, sandwiched between those excellent interviews with Steve Jackson and Sean Punch, in which I answered not only Spencer's question, about abstraction, but also a much older one from Ray Otis. This episode is a bonus call-in show focused around the initial reactions I got to episode 2, Why Do You Play What You Play? I have had a truck ton of lovely call-ins throughout the last two weeks, and yes, it has only been a little over two weeks since season 6 started airing, and although I will share those calls over time, I wanted to address one or two issues that arose from the content of episode 2. It seems that while some folk have commented, both here and through social media, that it was a valuable episode, not everyone is entirely comfortable with what I said. I'm going to admit to being very nervous here, feeling like I'm on pretty shaky ground as I try to stitch together some responses. Honestly, regular listeners will no doubt be aware that I am never comfortable dealing with unhappy people and I am desperate to avoid either annoying anyone further or misunderstanding what they were trying to say. On a podcast, we have to remember that were I down the pub with you, which is an incredibly precious image in this moment of pandemic, it seems, but if we were down the pub, I would be able to communicate much more directly and with greater clarity. Psychologists tell me that 55% of human communication comes through body language, none of which is evident here or through a call-in. Only 7% of the meaning comes from the actual words, and so I'm relying on my shaky grasp of the remaining tone of voice to convey how immensely pleased I am to have received these calls, questions, and challenges. So, this episode, I will be responding to those call-ins about simulation and abstraction in gaming received so far. To cap it all off, I hope to find time to briefly respond to the question that I've been dreading for five seasons of the show. Are you ready to brave the storm? Let's dive in. Simulation callbacks and the OSR question. Game on. Rescue! Hey Chase, Spencer here. And I just wanted to say a big thank you for such a full and complete response to my message. Um, yeah, really, really appreciate that. There were a couple of things I wanted to clarify. Just my use of the term role play was simply in reference to immersion in the um, fiction of the game 
uh, rather than immersion in the rules of the game. So um, kind of the flow of play at the table rather than the meta um, stuff of rules. Also, I didn't mean to imply that uh, rule abstract rules were in any way better than any other kind of rules. Um, simply the removal of detail from the rules didn't necessarily mean removal of detail from play, although I acknowledge that is often the upshot. Oh, and happy birthday. Hope you have a fantastic day. And uh, yeah, thanks again for a wonderful, wonderful episode. Take care, mate. Bye. So there you have it. Clarifications aside, Spencer, a.k.a. 3 for all from Keep Off the Borderlands. And, well, he seems pretty happy, right? Thanks for the birthday wishes. Uh, yep, the 18th was my 49th annual solo rotation survival day. And so I'm pleased to now be entering my 50th orbit of the sun. And, you know, still breathing, which is always a good thing, especially in the current state of things. So thanks, mate. I really did appreciate the message. And thanks to everyone else who sent me one. I got a lot on social media rather than call-ins, but I appreciate every single one of them. Thank you. Right then. Now, doing these in order of arrival, the next call-in came from my good friend Colin Spike Pit Green, but, well, it seems that I have managed to confuse him. So let's have a listen. Hi, Jay. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, breaking up RPGs uh, and finding these these categories like simulationist narrativist and all that I can't help thinking it's a bit like playing Jenga pulling the blocks out of the tower is there not a danger that the whole thing just comes tumbling down around your ears because I find the uh, the terminology in that kind of confusing especially I think the simulationist idea surely if we're sitting down and playing a tabletop role-playing game how do you play that without some element of simulation? Uh, I appreciate it's probably a sliding scale. You know, some people prefer more or less, but you can't divorce it from the whole. And I'm not suggesting that's what you're doing, but I'm just confused, man. So I'm a little bit confused, I guess, because I'm, I'm wondering why would you go through this process of breaking down these games? Maybe you're just trying to work out how they work in your own mind and, and categorising different aspects of games is a way that you do that. But when you talk about building communities and stuff, do you not think there's a danger that people could perhaps misinterpret what you're saying and start to put themselves into these groups? Like you call yourself a simulationist. Um... I, I, I'm not convinced by these labels and I, I think I don't I don't think that's maybe helpful I, I come from a wargaming background and, and things like that but I, I struggle and, and resist being put into those boxes really and I'm fully aware that you're not intentionally setting out to put people in boxes or cause any type but I think as a byproduct of what you're saying that could occur and most of all it sort of saddens me a little bit that you put in yourself in that that box and and that's the worst part of it for me because 
I, I think that will sort of slow your journey down a little bit. Um, not when you're talking about uh, the way that D&D combats run and, and what the players contribute and the descriptions from your own personal experience, I understand. But for me, it, it's just not like that. And I wonder... Are you sort of maybe missing missing a few things with with these restrictions you're placing on yourself? Thinking about it, perhaps you're just more comfortable with with these walls. You've probably said that, and you take some security from having the, these categories. Gives you a handle on things. Yeah, it's interesting, and it just goes to show it does take all sorts, and uh, it's interesting to think about, and uh, I appreciate the episodes. You've obviously put a lot of work in there, Che, and um, yeah, man, keep it up. I uh, hope you will. Later. Wow. Um, right, okay, there's a lot in there, Colin. Um, first of all, thank you for taking the time to make the call. I'm sorry if my episode caused you confusion, and that's never my intention, of course, but the sad truth about communication is that it's not what you intend that matters as much as what is understood. Let's see if I can unpick those thoughts a little and help you understand where I'm coming from a little bit better. To be honest, I want to start by pulling a classic philosopher's trick and disagreeing with the premise of one of your questions, which led to quite a few areas of misunderstanding. This is not me trying to be clever though, so I don't know. It does involve me starting in the middle. You asked me why I stick these labels on myself. The answer is that I don't. In fact, we need to go further because in my view, these are not labels that anyone should be sticking on another human being. They are, however, categories that I use to give an answer to Ray's original question about what I thought simulation was and how it connected to role-playing games. But let's be clear, I do not label myself as a simulationist. In fact, listening back to the episode, I used the word simulationist just once in relation to something I was doing, and that was labelling a single specific instance of play as coming from a simulationist purpose. In other words, after I gave the gamist instance of play with the golem, I was contrasting gamism from simulationism. I'm not one type of gamer. I don't believe that anyone is one type of gamer. I want to go further, in fact, and I want to remember that these labels themselves are not labels that I invented. The source was Ron Edwards' 2001 article on GNS theory. And yeah, I think it'd be useful to quote. In that article, however... Ron himself has something to say. Quote, Much torment has arisen from people perceiving GNS as a labelling device. Used properly, the terms apply only to decisions, not to whole persons nor to whole games. To be absolutely clear, to say that a person is, for example, gamist, is only shorthand for saying this person tends to make role-playing decisions in line with gamist goals. Similarly, to say that an RPG is, for example, gamist, is only shorthand for saying this RPG's content facilitates gamist concerns and decision-making. For better or for worse, both of these forms of shorthand are common. For a given instance of play, the three modes are exclusive in application. 
When someone tells me that their role-playing is all three, what I see from them is this. Features of, say, two of the goals appear in concert with or in service to the main one, but two or more fully prioritised goals are not present at the same time. So in the course of narrativist or simulationist play, moments or aspects of competition that contribute to the main goal are not gamism. In the course of gamist or simulationist play, moments of thematic commentary that contribute to the main goal are not narrativism. In the course of narratist or gamist play, moments of attention to plausibility that contribute to the main goal are not simulationism. The primary and not to be compromised goal is what it is for a given instance of play. The actual time or activity of an instance is necessarily left ambiguous. Over a greater period of time, across many instances of play, some people tend to cluster their decisions and interests around one of the three goals. Other people vary across the goals, but even they admit that they stay focused or prioritise for a given instance. End quote. In other words, these terms should not be applied to people because people and their behaviours while they're gaming are far more complex and ever-changing than a single label can encapsulate. In fact, these are merely terms to help uncover the reason why people play. That's why the episode was called Why Do You Play What You Play? I'm not trying to describe particular behaviours or ways of playing. But these are Ron's labels, and I'm not claiming them. I stated in episode 602 very clearly that one of the key reasons it took me four months to answer Ray's question was because I was uncomfortable with the use of that label, simulation. And that's because I had unwittingly fallen into the trap of believing that you can stick that label on the human person. So why do I stick these labels on myself? I don't. Won't people misunderstand and label themselves or other people? Yes, they will. They do. It's wrong. It's that simple for me. If we could stop the labelling, we could fix much that is wrong with the RPG community. Let me say it clearly. In this community, I won't have any space for labelling people with the intent of driving a wedge between folk. I'm trying to build a healthier community, a community of discovery in which people can accept each other for who they are and can feel accepted for who they are. To accept each other, no matter how we each choose to play. Your game may not be to my taste. You may be the person who triggers me in things that you have in your game, but I still believe in your fundamental right to play that game. And if you can garner player support, fine by me. Right, take a deep breath, Webster. So, Thank you, Colin, for calling out the potential danger in all of this theory stuff. Yes, I am absolutely aware of it. And although I'm aware that it turned into a rather passionate rant there, I do think it's important that you ask the question. So, is the analysis necessary? No. Uh, Analysis is never necessary. But that said, I believe that analysis is, to coin a phrase from the educational establishment, I believe analysis is on the spectrum of thinking towards the middle and higher order of thought. Questions that probe what something means and how something works are the bedrock of the scientific method. They're also the bedrock of what I do 
in learning philosophy and in teaching theology. Are the sciences necessary? Not really. But the analysis that scientists do has transformed our lives as human beings. And I guess for me, the analysis of this wonderful hobby is something that I want to engage in with the goal of helping both myself and others to play in a way that suits them better. Is labelling myself restricting my own experience of the game? Like I said, I don't label myself well, okay. Actually, I do label myself. I call myself the flaky GM and I stick all manner of negative labels all over the work I do as a hobbyist, but I don't label myself a simulationist or a gamist or a narrativist. It's not appropriate to do so. And therefore, those labels don't restrict me, no. The analysis is, however, helping me to identify weaknesses in my play and find ways to involve other players who aren't playing because they want to step on up or dream a world together. The story now folk get very bored in my games, just as my wife Deb will tell you if you ask her. I want to fix that, and it's only by analysing my games that I can now see the weaknesses and kind of start to find out how to start fixing those weaknesses. Am I just more comfortable with these walls and categories? I don't like the term walls, to be honest. Categories are not walls. They're convenient ways to organise ideas. They should not be viewed as fixed. And people don't fit neatly into categories. But I kind of think I've already covered that. So yeah, thanks Colin. I hope I haven't either annoyed you with my passion or confused you even more. And I massively appreciate the call in. Thank you. Game on. Okay, lonely adventurer here. I just want to say I really enjoyed the uh, conversation, I guess we'll call it that, uh, between Spencer, Ray, Otis, and uh, yourself regarding abstract rules versus more wargaming rules. Uh, I, like you, I'm kind of a more of a... Uh, tactical gamer but i played in all kinds of games and i adapt my own game to fit my my own table what the players are interested to and i play with very different people in different groups uh, and i don't find one better than the other really it's just a matter of adjusting expectations and approaches uh, but i definitely do agree with you that players themselves are not always well equipped to uh describe the action uh, that they are uh, undertaking. They seem to look to the, the GM in all different kinds of games to do that for them. Uh, the eternal storytellers, I guess. Have a great one. Great to hear from you, Lonely Adventurer. Thanks for the message. And yes, I think from what I just spent about 12 minutes saying that we are in agreement. Different players want different things from their games. We come to the table with very different reasons to play, different purposes. And yeah, the key is communicating those wants, assuming, of course, that you have any awareness of what you want beyond what I find is the rather unhelpful stated intent of seeking to have fun. Anyway, thanks for the call, and I hope you are well. And on the subject of description in play, uh, well, the lonely adventurer wasn't the only one to have things to say. Andy Goodman called in, and, well, I'll leave it to him. Not much more I can add at this point. Uh, so take it away, Mr. Goodman. Chey, Andy Goodman here. I wanted to thank you for the lovely shout-out in your Why Do Why do We Play Games episode, or Why Do People Play Games. And, um, yeah, really uh, um, 
glad you enjoyed that interview with Ron. We have kind of talked about it a little bit one-to-one. Um, I I was really enlightened by that interview. Um, he's not the easiest person to interview, <laughs> as you probably could detect, um, but I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. And, and you'll be surprised to hear that even though I am a story now dude, <laughs> I actually much and fall much more on your side than I fall on Spencer's side in that discussion about abstraction and, um, and, and, and narrating the outcomes of things and, and the consequences of them. And you see, the reason is that when you are in this abstraction mode, and I, and I go there quite often, um, you know, we play a lot of Call of Cthulhu, I've been playing Tales of the Loop, super abstract in, in many ways, although there, there is complexity and crunch in Call of Cthulhu if you want it. Um, but what, what that relies on then is a real bond of trust between the GM and the player to say, well, look, if you have narrated this thing to have happened to you in the combat, so you've taken an arrow to the knee, <laughs> as it were, you have to then act out the consequences of that without a mechanical crutch, so to speak, to lean on, because there is nothing mechanical there. It's just you've lost some hit points. Whereas in a more complex system, that would actually impede you in some way. You would get some kind of penalty to maybe your movement speed or your reaction speed. Um... And, and I think that's the crux of the, the argument, actually. And, and I find what tends to happen, it's not so much the player saying, I chopped the orc's head off, because you as a GM, you can, you can just say, no, you haven't actually killed it. Maybe you've just cut halfway through and the blood's gushing out and, uh, you know, it's armor just stopped the blow from going all the way through. You can, you can work your way around that. Um, but, but what is much more difficult is to get the player to embody whatever penalty has, has, has happened to them. And uh, I think that takes a lot of work on, on both of your behalf. The player has to trust that you're not trying to screw them over and, and so on. So I, I think that's where I end up. And, and, you know, you'd be surprised here. I do like crunch, actually, or, or let's say complexity in rules, particularly around spell casting and, and, you know, when you do critical hits and things like that. I enjoy that stuff. I really do. And I think there is no barrier between having that in your game and being very story now. Um, I think if you, if you listen to any of my, my Call of Cthulhu um, actual plays... You'll you'll sort of hear it, but you won't because what what I'm doing now with the help of TJ is we're editing out all the dice rolls. Um, someone actually left a message about that, saying that they kind of enjoyed that, and I'm sort of thinking I need to put them back in now because actually, it it actually it's harder to understand what's going on if you don't hear the dice roll. There's something very interesting going on there for me about how a dice roll becomes part of the story. Okay, that is a rabbit hole that I am not going to go down now. So I will say goodbye and let you get on with your day and uh, we'll talk soon. All right, bye, mate. Oh, mate, I really want to go down that rabbit hole with you. That'll be fantastic. Um, yeah. Andy, thank you so much for calling it. I don't think there's a lot I can add. I think you said it very, very well. But um, there you go. Articulating the idea that abstraction and complexity... Uh, have their place no matter what your intention and purpose is with gaming i mean for me like you i i enjoy a little bit of complexity i don't know if it's the right word or a little bit of detail less abstraction in the things around like you said magic and also combat that's what i like 
in those specific instances of play but it, again it depends a little bit on the nature of the battle and the spell let me try and explain i think if it's a quick kind of bash against the mooks i'm not so worried about it being super super detailed but if it's the kind of end of it end of game you know showdown kind of moment although great a dramatic climax in my story then unfortunately i really do want that to be played out you know with some serious detail so yeah anyway i'm wittering thank you for calling in i really appreciate that andy and uh, yeah we're gonna have to talk more about this whole how the dice are part of the story because i think that's at the heart of what a role-playing game is game on <laughs> It's competition time! Okay, I'm about to play a call-in from a first-time caller and the most recent patron of Roleplay Rescue. In my hand, I am holding, here it is, listen, a copy of the extended zine by Drew Mager, What Happened at Wyvern Rock. This is a 5e-based but largely generic supplement all about bringing high strangeness to high fantasy. If you've ever wanted to mix it up with greys or have your players experience very strange events based on classic UFO sightings, this is a supplement for you. So, here's the competition. I'm going to play the call-in. The person who comes back with the most helpful one-minute call-in, and that'll be as judged by the caller, they will receive the supplement. I'll get back in touch and sort out shipping it out to you later. But all you've got to do right now is call in and give, in one minute or less, your best answer to the question that gets asked. You can call in using the Anchor message system, or you can just record a quick thing on your phone and email it to me here. Hello at rpgrescue.com. Okay, that's hello at rpgrescue.com. You ready? Here goes. Hey, Che. I'm Daniel. I'm from Indiana here in the States. I'm an old gamer and role-playing game designer as well, and I'm really enjoying your podcasts. My question for you today is, what does OSR gaming really refer to? I've only learned the term over the past two years from Twitter, and I'm only getting a thin sketch of what they mean. Superficially, it seems to be pointing to role-playing games made before 2000 and seems heavily old D&D or advanced D&D first or second edition, but surely there's much more to it than that. Is it because it's a more serious scenario? Is it more lethal? Or is it a reaction against the new wave of performance and drama role-playing games, especially that we see on streams? Also, in some corners of Twitter, there seems to be an ugly drama with regards to the OSR, but I'm really in the dark about that as well. So uh, that's my question. Enjoy your cast and enjoy hearing your answer to this. Thank you. Rescue! And that's how I'm going to wriggle out of that one for a little longer. Thank you, Daniel, for the call-in. There's going to be an avalanche of call-ins on that question, with dozens of excited gamers all wanting to get Drew's excellent zine, What Happened at Wyvern Rock, and you, Daniel, yes, you. You get to judge the most useful answer. Failing that, of course, I'll give you my fumbling answer instead in a future episode. But let's see what people have to say, if anything. Don't let me down, rescuers. Please, call in. What does OSR gaming really mean? 
On that note, I'm out of here. This episode is already way too long, and even though I can see a whole stack more call-ins away, I'm gonna just call it a day. Thank you to my callers today, to Daniel, Andy, Lonely Adventurer, Colin, Spencer, and Jason. Thank you. You made this episode happen. Thank you to the Roleplay Rescue community patrons. Your patronage, it keeps me going and growing, and thanks once again. And thank you to you, the listener, for taking a little time out of your day to listen in. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again next time. Game on.